So we have been studying the Old Covenant now for a few years and we have been working through kind of systematically what is the Old Covenant. And we looked at different types of Old Covenant law and we looked at the various components of the physical tabernacle and so on and so forth. And we're, in, we're presently in a subcategory of studying the Old Covenant calendar at the moment, looking at the various feasts that arose throughout the course of a year under the Old Covenant. And tonight we are examining the Feast of First Fruits, which is in Leviticus 23, verses 9 to 14. And as we have been doing with the other feasts, so we will do tonight, for the sake of redundancy, we'll skip over the specific details of the sacrifices that were offered in the Feast of the First Fruits. Since we've already looked at the significance of various types of offerings in the Old Covenant in significant um, detail already. So as we consider the Feast of First Fruits, what we, what we basically see is that when the uh, harvest began, they were to bring of the first fruits, some of the, that early harvest, and bring it and offer it to the Lord. And tonight we are focusing in on this theological significance of this institution, of this event in the Jewish calendar. And the Feast of First Fruits is theologically significant in two ways. The first of which is that the Feast of First Fruits teaches a principle of honoring God with your wealth. Proverbs 3 and verse 9 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Now the Feast of First Fruits was imposed upon an agrarian society, a farming society. But the principle is more broadly applicable. We are not to give God the leftovers, but the first portion, as He prospers us. Now, conservative Christians disagree amongst... I, I was going to write themselves, but I would number myself among them. So, Conservative Christians disagree amongst ourselves about the applicability of a strict tithe in the New Testament church. And even I have gone forth, back and forth in my own mind about this, to be honest. But it is certainly clear, wherever you land on the issue of a strict tithe, it is certainly clear in Scripture that we aren't to honor God in every area, putting God first in every area, except for our finances. We should all be able to agree at least about that. And the tithe isn't really what the Feast of the First Fruits is anyway, strictly speaking. And so that's sort of somewhat peripheral to our conversation, though I'll mention it a little bit over the next few minutes as we, as we consider this. The Feast of First Fruits teaches us very clearly, though, at least, that just as you ought not to give God the leftover of your time, but rather you ought to schedule your life around the worship of God, both publicly setting aside time to gather with the saints, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, and also privately, that we ought not to be worshiping God only on Sundays with the gathering of God's people, but in our daily lives. So just as God is not to be an afterthought with respect to our time, but we focus our time 
pardon me, but we set aside time for God first, and then we plan the rest of our lives around that. So we also not, ought not to give God the leftover of our money, but rather we ought to structure our finances around that first priority of giving to God. So does this mean that you have to give a strict 10% no matter what, first and foremost, before you do anything else with your money? Maybe. Certainly, if it is the case, case that the tithe maintains its applicability, even in the New Testament era, then yes, the answer to that is yes, no matter what, 10%. That's, that's how strict the tithe was in the Old Covenant. It wasn't just a matter of when you can or optional. It was a strict and inflexible, rigid requirement. Some would argue that there is an ease of the strictness of the tithe in the New Testament, since we read things like this. If the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. And each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. 2 Corinthians 8, 12 and 9, 7, respectively. Now, you couldn't, you couldn't say that of the tithe in the Old Testament. Let me point that out. You couldn't, you couldn't say, yeah, you, generally you tithe, but if the readiness is there, then the gift is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what a person doesn't have. You couldn't say that about the tithe. And you couldn't say, with respect to the tithe, yeah, 10% is a general principle, but each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or out of compulsion. In the Old Covenant, it was just 10%, period. So some, some understand that there is more flexibility and less rigidity and strictness with respect to the tithe um, being a strict 10% in the, in the New Covenant. But whatever the case specifically about the tithe, again, I just want to bring it back to this principle which is certainly abiding, that our attitude shouldn't be to give to God as little as possible once the more important things in our lives are taken care of, and once the more important people are taken care of, then whatever's left over will give to God. As He is less important than our other priorities and the other people. You see how wrong that attitude would be? That God does not wish to be on the back burner with respect to your wallet any more than God wishes to be on the back burner with respect to your affections or with respect to your time. So just as you can't say, yeah, God is mildly important to me. Like, I, I love my spouse. I love my kids. Like, I got some really good friends. And I mean, God is okay. I kind of like Him. No, no, no. You can't do that. Likewise, you can't say, well... Yeah, I mean, like, binge-watching Netflix is super important. So I make time for that. And I, I definitely, I make time to go out with my friends socially. You know, I mean, obviously, you gotta, you got to live, you got to work, so I make time for my vocation. If I have time, I go to church. Because it's, I mean, it's, it's mildly important to me. But, I mean, not that important. So you see how you can't, you can't do that with your affections. You can't do that with your time. You can't do that with your money either. As if it's okay to just put God first in other categories and then put God last 
when it comes to your money. Listen to God in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 8, which of course was written in an Old Covenant context where the tithe was most certainly applicable. God says, Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, How have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. Doubtless people in Malachi's day had their reasons excusing why they did not give what they ought to have given to God. But God is not satisfied with their excuses. He presses them on the issue of what they do with their money. And even today, whether the strict tithe is applicable or not, it is not a neutral and amoral issue whether or not we honor God with our money. The principle of the first portion, at least, still applies. Now, someone might say, well, God doesn't need our money. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, according to the psalmist. Yes, that's true. God is not in need. But God counts giving to His people as giving to Him. And He desires and commands to be honored in that way. Matthew 25, verses 31 and following, Jesus says that He will say to those who gave His hungry lambs food and who gave His thirsty sheep drink, who clothed the naked, who welcomed the stranger, who visited the sick and imprisoned, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And in Proverbs 19 and verse 17, we read that whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord and He will repay him according to His deed. So God, at least at times, counts giving on the horizontal plane as giving vertically to Him. And such is certainly the case with the Feast of the Firstfruits. An offering is brought to the tabernacle and later to the temple once the tent gave gave way to a permanent structure. And God counts what has been brought horizontally to be offered to the, the priests. God counts it as having been offered to Him. So in the New Testament, when an offering is brought to the church, God counts it as having been offered to Him. So, though we don't need to keep the Feast of First Fruits in the New Covenant, since it was an Old Covenant institution, part of the ceremonial law, which is no longer binding upon us, and whether or not a strict tithe is applicable in the New Covenant or not, there is certainly a principle taught us in the Feast of First Fruits, which is that we ought to give to God by giving to the church a first portion of whatever wealth that we accrue. And it is an important way that we show honor to God. And additional to that, it was how God provided for the priests under the Old Covenant. In Numbers 18 and 13, God says to Aaron, as representative of his priestly family, the first ripe fruits of all that is in their land, which they bring to the Lord, Listen to that. Which they bring to the Lord shall be yours, God says to Aaron. 
And in 1 Corinthians 9, 13 and 14, Paul says, Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who share, and pardon me, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? So he's referring back to stuff like the Feast of the First Fruits, where something is brought to the Lord and given to the priests. And God counts it, that which is given to the priests, as having been given to him. Paul's referring back to that. And then he says, in the same way, the Lord commanded that those who preach the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So Paul argues in 1 Corinthians 9 that just as the temple had a responsibility to its workers, so the church has a responsibility to its workers. And of course, an inanimate structure like the temple, or we say, hey, I'll meet you at the church, and we mean the building, right? When we use it like that. An inanimate structure like the, ta- the tabernacle or a church building cannot take care of a person. So when Paul says that those who are employed in the temple get their food from the temple, it does not mean that the tent or the, or the permanent structure, the temple, somehow magically emanated from its walls food for the priests. Right? It wasn't the physical structure of the temple that gave food to the priests. So, neither, when Paul compares Old Covenant priests getting their food from the temple and New Covenant ministers getting their food from the church, he's not envisioning that the walls just produce fruit the way that a tree gives forth its fruit. The walls of the building do not give forth fruit. So he's using a figure of speech here. But the responsibility for feeding the priests of old, under the old covenant structure, was implicitly upon the people who gathered and worshipped at the temple. So when Paul says, in the same way, under the new covenant, those who preach the gospel should get their living by the gospel, the responsibility is placed not upon the church building to bear fruit like a tree, but upon the people who gather there and the community of faith that worships there. The community of faith in the Old Covenant therefore had a responsibility to support those who were set apart for service in the temple. And so, likewise, the community of faith, Paul argues in 1 Corinthians 9, has a responsibility to support those who are set apart for service in the church. This means, therefore, if you are a member of a church, either here at CRBC or elsewhere, you ought to feel a responsibility to contribute to the church budget as you're able. It is your duty according to the scriptures, to help the church meet its financial obligations. So whatever your church is financially responsible for, 
you are partially responsible for it. Since it is the people who worship there and not the walls which are to bring forth the fruit, which is to actually take care of the church's financial obligations. This is the logic of 1 Corinthians 9. So by way of application, consider your own giving to the church, whether that is here at CRBC or elsewhere. Are you keeping the Feast of First Fruits principle Honoring God with the first fruits of your wealth. And in doing so, in the very act of doing so, are you doing your part to fulfill the community of faith's financial obligations? There is both a Godward aspect of honoring God and a practical aspect of honoring God by helping the community of faith fulfill its responsibility to its workers. This is latent in the feast of first fruits. The general principles are still applicable today, even though the feast itself is no longer observed in the New Covenant community. So as I said at the beginning, the feast of first fruits is theologically significant in two ways. And that was the first of the two ways. The second is this. The feast of first fruits foreshadows Christ Jesus who is himself the firstfruits of those who are to be raised from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 20 states it explicitly. Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. And then verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 15 says, But each in his own order, Christ, the firstfruits, then at His coming, those who belong to Christ. Listen, God clearly wants us to think about the resurrection of the people of God as a kind of harvest of which Christ was the firstfruits. Christ's resurrection was a foretaste and a harbinger of more resurrections to come. Just as that first sheaf of wheat was a foretaste and a harbinger of a bigger harvest to come each and every annual first feast of first fruits. The concept is, is simple enough. The first apple that grows on a tree at the season in which the tree brings forth apples is the first fruits. And when you see that first one grow, you say a whole bunch more apples are coming. This is the first fruits principle. The first fruits is a foretaste and a harbinger of more apples to come, more sheaths of wheat to come, more resurrections to come. The concept is simple enough, but let me develop the biblical imagery a little bit more here before I make application to our lives today. And bear with me because this is a little complicated, but it's worth it. And allow me to start with a lengthy quote from Gordon Wenham. Hang in there, alright? By New Testament times, most Jews followed a lunar calendar with 29 or 30 days in each month. Under this calendar, the Jewish festivals fall on different days of the solar year each year. 
For example, the 1976 Passover fell on April 15th. And in 1977, on April 3rd. And under this calendar, the Jewish festivals fall on different days of the week. In 1976, the Passover was on a Thursday. And in 1977, the Passover was on a Sunday. Wenham goes on, he says, It is generally supposed in most textbooks that a more primitive version of this same system was followed in Old Testament times. More recently, however, it has been argued that, in fact, the Old Testament follows the calendar mentioned in the Book of Jubilees and used by the Essenes at Qumran, the so-called Jubilees calendar. This employs a year of exactly 52 weeks, 364 days, end quote. All right, I'm going somewhere with this, so hang in there. For two reasons, I'm convinced by my study that the Old Testament laws that we read here in Leviticus 23 do, in fact, presuppose that Jubilee's calendar that Gordon Wenham was talking about as the basis for timekeeping. So let me refresh, or not refresh, review and bring down to earth a little bit what I just said, that quote from Gordon Wenham. By the time of the New Testament, when Jesus and the apostles were walking the earth, the Jews were using a calendar that meant that the festivals would fall on different days of the week and different dates each year. So one year the Passover would be on a Thursday, another year it would be on a Sunday, another year it would be on April 15th, another year it would be on April 29th. And there was just no steadiness and no consistency to the day of the week or the date that a particular festival would fall on. But Wenham argues, and I agree, that earlier, at the time that Leviticus was written, this was not the case. And a calendar called the Jubilees calendar was being used, which would mean that the festivals would fall on the same day of the week and the same date each year. Okay? That's where we are so far. Now, I think that this is a really compelling argument for two reasons. First, this, I'm going to talk about Noah's Ark here, but Noah's Ark has nothing to do with Leviticus 23. Noah's Ark has to do with whether or not they were using the Jubilees calendar at that early stage or not. Alright? So, we're going somewhere. Hang in there. First, if they were using the Jubilees calendar at the time that Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy were written... It would enrich the symbolism of the Noah's Ark narrative. And it would make sense of the scrupulous mention of dates and number of days in the Noah's Ark narrative. Rather than leaving us to view the dates and days as nothing more than interesting tidbits to satisfy our curiosity. If the Jubilees calendar underlies Genesis, then we have the flood announced and beginning on a Sunday. 
which is the reversal of God's work of creation, which also began on a Sunday, since God finished it on Friday and rested on Saturday. So God creates beginning on a Sunday and consummating on a Friday and then resting on a Saturday. And then in the Noah's Ark narrative, God decreates, if you will, beginning on a Sunday. Then we have the Ark coming to rest on a Friday, signifying that God's work of decreation is completed that day. And that God will rest again on that Saturday as He did that first creation week. Then the doves' third flight, well, the doves, all three of the doves' flights, the first, the second, and the third, all happen on Sundays. But specifically, it is that third flight from which the dove does not return and therefore fills Noah and his family's hearts and minds with hope that there is now a new creation waiting for them, ready to be enjoyed, now that they have been rescued from the outpouring of God's wrath, and that they may now, after having entered into the ark of their salvation and been saved from God's wrath, now they may go and enjoy a new creation that God has prepared for them. That dove's third flight happens on a Sunday. Just as we gain hope of a new creation on a Sunday. When Jesus, the first fruits, is raised, giving us a foretaste of what we will also one day be having our bodies raised in the same manner as His body was raised to enjoy that new creation in our new creation bodies. So it would enrich the symbolism of the Noah's Ark narrative considerably if the Jubilees calendar is assumed to be operative and that we're talking about Jubilees calendar dates and days when we read the Noah's Ark narrative. Otherwise, the dates and days are, as far as I can tell, somewhat insignificant in the sense that there's no real symbolism, or at least that I can decipher, or that many other theologians can decipher, associated with those days, and they're given to us strictly as historical curiosities. That's the first reason why I think that it's likely that the Jubilees calendar was in fact operative at the time of the writing of Genesis through Deuteronomy. Second, it would be both practical and instructive for the Old Covenant people to keep the festivals on the same calendar days each year, which Wenham says would have been the case if the Jubilees calendar is the basis for timekeeping under the Old Covenant at the time that God instituted these feasts. Using the Jubilees calendar, quote, each year began on a Wednesday, and the major festivals all began on Wednesday. End quote. 
Wenham says about the practicality of the feasts happening on the same days of the week each year. If the major festivals did always begin on Wednesday, then it would have been a great boon to ordinary people who would not have possessed calendars. Also, if the festivals began on Wednesday, those who lived a long way from Jerusalem would not have needed to journey on the Sabbath to go up to the temple. So there is this great practicality for God to institute festivals that began on the same calendar day and the same day of the week each year in the age not only before iPhones, but before watches, before even written calendars. It would have been a lot easier to keep track of what's going on if these things always happened at the same time. And since God designed the festivals to actually be kept, first of all, it would help if the priests could keep track of what's going on in a pretty simple system. And secondly, since God designed the feast to be instructive, it also makes sense that the common people would have an idea of what was going on rather than simply a timekeeper in the back room somewhere keeping track of things on a scroll. So there's great practicality to thinking that the Jubilees calendar was probably in effect from Genesis to Deuteronomy. And with respect to instruction, which I just alluded to, consider this again from Wenham. If one accepts that Leviticus is based on the Jubilees calendar, it would seem more likely that the first sheaf was offered on Sunday, the day after the Sabbath, than on Thursday, the second day of the feast. So here's where we're going to kind of land the plane. And like, obviously I've been talking about the two different calendars. And here's, here's what's at stake beyond simply the practicality of it. The Feast of First Fruits most certainly did prefigure and foreshadow Christ's resurrection from the dead. That's not at stake or disputable regardless of which calendar is used. That became clear in hindsight as Christ rose on the day of the Feast of First Fruits and then Pentecost happened on the occasion of the Feast of Weeks. Then Paul uses the terminology of first fruits to talk about Christ's resurrection. So it is beyond doubt, regardless of which calendar was being used in Leviticus, it is beyond doubt that the Feast of First Fruits prefigured and foreshadowed Christ's resurrection, regardless of whatever day of the week the feast may have fell on in Old Testament times. But, if one accepts that Leviticus is based on the Jubilees calendar, then the sheaf that was waved before the Lord in the Feast of Firstfruits would have been waved every year on a Sunday. And what would be so instructive about the Firstfruit sheaf being offered to the Lord on a Sunday? Well, it would correspond perfectly year after year with Christ's resurrection from the dead as Corinthians puts it the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep which happened on a Sunday also 
it would also mean that the Feast of Weeks, which foreshadows Pentecost, Pentecost just basically means 50 days, and in Leviticus 23 and verse 16 we read, you shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. It would also mean that the Feast of Weeks, which foreshadows Pentecost, happened on a Sunday every year throughout that early Old Covenant period also. So if the Jubilees calendar underlies Leviticus, then each and every year in that early era of Old Testament times, when God instituted the Feast of Firstfruits and the Feast of Weeks, year in and year out, the first fruit sheaf was waved on a Sunday, and then 50 days later, seven Sundays later, the Feast of Weeks happened on a Sunday also. Year in and year out, these Sundays, 50 days apart. Now, as I said, the Feast of First Fruits certainly did prefigure and foreshadow Christ's resurrection, regardless of whether it happened on a Sunday every year or not. But if it did, all I'm saying is it would have been a lot harder for the average person to miss the import and significance of it if the pattern throughout most of the Old Covenant era, year in and year out, was the first fruits on a Sunday, and then seven days later, the Feast of Weeks. First fruits, then the celebration of a larger harvest when Jesus came out of the grave on a Sunday, as was the pattern of old. On not just any Sunday, but the day which was the day of the Feast of First Fruits. Such symbolism could have rendered even the average Jew. at the time when Jesus rose from the dead in that early church, almost prescient, almost knowing what to expect 50 days later, if it was that this first fruit Sunday was followed by a larger harvest 50 days later on that eighth Sunday. When even the average Jew saw Christ arose, saw Christ arise on the, that first Sunday, that day of the Feast of Firstfruits. He should expect, wow, this means that not only has Jesus risen from the dead, but Jesus is the firstfruits from the dead. And what is going to happen now, seven Sundays later, 50 days later? There must be a larger harvest coming. And indeed, about 3,000 souls were added on the occasion of the Feast of Weeks, that particular year in which Christ arose, according to Acts 2.41. More on this next week. But I hope that you can see that though Christ's resurrection was significant for a number of reasons, I hope you can see by now that the fact that Christ rose on the day of the Feast of Firstfruits teaches us that A, a larger harvest is coming, and then B, 
this is a point of application, that we personally may rise and be part of that larger harvest. If Jesus is the first fruits, which he most certainly is, again, regardless of the day, all the day would do is make the, make the lesson clearer. I hope that wasn't too complicated and that that's apparent. Whether this calendar was used or that calendar was used, the lesson is the same. What's at stake, whether this calendar was used or that calendar was used, is how obvious and apparent that lesson would have been to the ancient people. But the lesson certainly remains that the Feast of Firstfruits prefigured and foreshadowed Christ rising from the dead. The ones who received it in the beginning would not have understood that, as was the case with so many things that were understood later. But we recognize that God wove into the Old Covenant many things which would become clearer later. And so in hindsight, from our vantage point, we see that that set a pattern of first fruits and harvest, that Christ would be the first fruits from the dead, but that many others would later rise from the dead. That is a lesson to be gleaned here. Again, more on that next week, but let that simple truth be absorbed and understood this week. The very concept of first fruits, that Christ is the first fruits from the dead, implies that there is a larger harvest from the dead to follow. And therefore, more people will rise from the dead if it is the case that Jesus is the first fruits. The Feast of First Fruits teaches us then that Jesus' resurrection isn't to be understood as a unique, isolated event in which a solitary man rose from the dead. Rather, it is to be understood as a prototype and a pattern of many more resurrections to come. And if it is the case that many people may rise from the dead, then it ought to raise an obvious question in your mind. Will you rise from the dead? The scriptures actually teach that everyone will rise from the dead, but not all to eternal blessedness. Listen to Revelation 20, verses 13 to 15. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So a better question is not simply, will you rise from the dead? But will you rise from the dead like Jesus as part of a harvest that God is gathering in? And will you thus inherit the kingdom of God? And live in the new heavens and new earth in eternal blessedness. Listen, friend, you may. As I reminded you this morning, Jesus said, Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. It is not simply the case that many will rise, but also that you may rise. that you may be among that many. Trust in Jesus' life, death, 
and resurrection. Believing that because He lived righteously, that you may be found righteous in Him. That because He died, that your sin is atoned for. And that because He rose, you may rise. Let us live with and long for that resurrection hope which we have in Christ.